Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. So maybe what we wanted was actually just a scene between Zeus and Poseidon right at the beginning of the show where <laughs> they're on top of the Empire State where he says, Building. Zeus, Poseidon, it's been many years. What do you see? Thunderclouds, but no lightning. Stolen. <laughs> what, you think I took it? <laughs> Every time I forget you have that entire scene memorized. Omnipotence has blinded you, brother. We're forbidden from <laughs> <laughs> everybody, and welcome back to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And I'm Emily, a classic scholar-ish. Today we'll be talking about episode two of the Percy Jackson TV series, I Become Supreme Lord of the Bathroom. Y'all, so much has happened since we last recorded. We went to the premiere. Yes, we went to the premiere. It was so much fun. It was so much fun. <laughs> Uh, we got to see the first two episodes fully rendered in an audience. I really think they should be playing this show in theaters. It's so much fun, like, in a theater. Yeah, I really, I just, I want to see the whole show in a crowd of fans. And so thank you all so much for listening and for supporting us and for... <laughs> making that happen. Like, making that happen, honestly, like, genuinely. It's been so great to get to experience the launch of this show this way and to get to like really get to talk to everybody involved and just it's just so cool are we ready to get into it yes but first same morning as last episode there will be spoilers in our discussion for the entire book series so if you haven't read the books or you haven't listened to those episodes we will be referring back to them a lot all right episode two i thought it was interesting once you pointed it out for episode one that we open on the storm again Yes, it's the storm, the same storm. Mm. This is the third character introduction that we've gotten that's like this, where they're like out of focus and it's the same storm out. The first was Percy, who's like out of focus as he narrates in the very first scene of the show. So, you know, as a first time viewer, you're trying to make out like where he is and who he is. He's just this like blurry figure until Mm. he actually steps close enough for you to see him. And then the second one is Kronos, who just remains out on the horizon in the fog and like just far enough that we can't make him out yet. Although we'll hear more from (laughs) Eric and Jeff about that uh, eventually, but we still haven't gotten to see him clearly yet. 
Um, and now we have Annabeth, who is behind Cloth, and we're seeing her like through bleary eyes. And then we'll see her later again uh, in this episode, but she still, for us, hasn't quite made it into focus. Like, she didn't quite make it into focus in her introduction, and so she's still a little bit of a mystery that we have to solve. And so I just, mm -hmm. I just find all three of these and how or whether they show their faces to us in their introduction symbolic of how we kind of get to know them at the beginning. Because Percy, you know, steps out of that fog and introduces himself and tells us directly who he is. And then Kronos, Kronos talks a lot. <laughs> Kronos just talks and talks and talks. He does talk. But never gets closer. Like he only slowly draws closer and we still can't see him. And, you know, we might get a good look at Annabeth later in the episode, but who she is hasn't yet come out of her own mouth. Like her, her story will only be told to us in this episode through Luke. Otherwise, mm. she's still kind of blurry. And it's interesting as well, because Kronos, at least the way he's introduced, he's sort of like, who are you? What are you doing here? You're a nobody. Like, run away, little hero. Contrasted a little with Annabeth's, he must be the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Both of them, to Percy, being these sort of, in the middle of the night, these these blurry figures who are just trying to figure him out. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, and this might just be me seeing things, and I couldn't tell if it was a flash of lightning when Annabeth's there or not, but Annabeth was there, like, in daylight. Like, the storm wasn't outside. Oh, I thought it looked like it was just lightning outside. It could have been just lightning. I thought you meant that, like, when Percy woke up at camp, it seemed like the storm had cleared up. Like, there was no... Like, at the end of the last episode, it was clear out. It looked clear, yeah. I know, that's what I was thinking. I was like, I thought the storm had cleared, like, continuity-wise. So I was wondering if he was still, like, half-stuck in a Kronos dream. That's why he was hearing it. Mm. And so the next time Percy wakes up, he has Grover watching over him. And we see him realize that his mom is gone. And Grover clearly wants to talk about it with him, but he doesn't want to talk about it. And I don't know if we... I don't remember if we talked about this in our Lightning Thief episode or if we've just talked about it a million other times <laughs> when we've talked about Percy Jackson. But in the book, Percy realizes his mom is gone and starts to get lost in thoughts of like, I'm an orphan now. What am I going to do? I can't go home. I'm going to have to live on the street and join the army, I think. <laughs> But then as he's like cycling through those thoughts, he looks over at Grover and realizes that Grover's afraid that Percy's going to be upset with him. And mm. all of that energy just shifts toward comforting Grover and making mm. sure that Grover knows it wasn't his fault. But in this scene, yeah, Grover's dynamics. saying all of the same lines. Yeah, like, I'm sorry. I'm supposed to be your protector. Maybe if I told you the truth, uh, your mom would still be here. And Percy just turns his back on him. Yeah, um, Poor, he's like he's like trying to get space because he's crying, and Grover is like, "No, I yeah. need to talk to you." And he's like, "Stop!" Yeah, and I just I love like we said last time the fact that we're carrying through this tension between Percy and yeah. Grover that we have at the beginning. Yeah, and I think in light of what you just said as well, it's really interesting that since now in this version, like Percy's sort of got this. He's been introduced to the concept of like, "Oh, you have a father who's a god" by Sally, and I think that's also what drives him into. Instead of the thought process of like, what am I going to do? My mom's gone. I don't have anybody anymore. It's now, okay, where's my dad? I'm going to go find him. It's just that immediate, I'm going to make him answer for this. That's big in this episode. That's mm -hmm. an attitude that's going to be throughout this episode. But that was something that I really liked about this episode is how Percy just does not understand how to play by the rules that we know this world operates under. Mm. Um, like the assumption that his dad is going to be here and just walking yeah. around like show me my dad at Camp Half Flood or that yeah. he can pray at any fire and his mom will hear him uh, yeah. later on but uh, 
He's, he quickly learns what the rules of this world are when he heads outside and makes it to the porch, which is gorgeous. Yeah. And just all of the, all of the, um, the lighting and the, just the color, the colors of the, these scenes at Camp Half-Blood, like you pointed out in the last episode, the, the warmth when Grover appears, that like total shift from blue to orange. Mm. We get the same thing here where there's just all of Camp Half-Blood is just very warm. Where the first episode was a lot of blue, the camp is a lot of orange. And there's the stained glass and the porch and you can see the beach with the canoes out by the lake. And the mountains on Long Island. And the mountains on Long Island. It's funny because whenever I see a beach in the woods in Vancouver in a movie, I can't look at it without thinking of Camp Rock. It's all Camp Rock to me. Like, that's literally where <laughs> Mitchie and Shane took a canoe out on the water. <laughs> it's a new expression, right? Not it's all Greek to me. It's all Camp Rock to me. It's all Camp Rock to me. <laughs> um, but while I was looking at this this beautiful introduction to some of the sets at Camp Half-Blood, I was just thinking about that one line in The Lightning Thief where Percy sees Camp Half-Blood for the first time and thinks to himself, um, my mother was gone. The whole world should be black and cold. Nothing should look beautiful. Yeah, it's interesting looking at the porch because I'm obviously staring at all the backgrounds like, okay, what are the influences here? So first of all, I love the fact that when they turn the camera around to the side without the glass, that was the part I was really looking at that I thought was really cool because there's all these gorgeous frescoes on the wall and there's all these gorgeous like multicolored tiles but what I found kind of interesting was I was staring at it and I was like this looks Roman to me like it looks a lot more Roman Mm. than Greek that being said frescoes and wall paintings and decoration like that is definitely not exclusively Roman but it's also very very classical you can actually see a lot of beautiful examples of Roman frescoes that were in villas and stuff and and that's what like the big house looked like mostly to me was a villa like a Roman Mm. villa like the height of luxury yeah I didn't think about that. That's so true. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what it looks like. Right? Oh, yeah, because I'm sure you've seen a bunch of them. I've seen many of them. <laughs> yeah. And the way the, like, even when it's not a fresco or a painting, but the way the um, outlines of the wall with, like, the squares and stuff, the sort of, like, artificial painted column look, like, that's mm. all very Roman, too. Yeah. And the reds, especially. That screams Roman to me. Something else that I noticed the most recent time I watched it too was when we're introduced to Mr. D, the camera kind of pans and zooms onto him and we just see him sitting at the table. And what really struck me was all of the candles that are surrounding him, even though they're not lit and there's all this stained glass and he's sitting at this like beautiful pink marble table. And I kept thinking like, this looks almost like an altar. Mm. Um, Because especially you see, I think stained glass comes more in in much later periods because it's obviously pretty technical to achieve. Um, That being said, colored glass was a thing even back in ancient Egyptian times. So, but so that all feels a bit more modern to me. The stained glass and the designs on the stained glass also all look a lot more modern to me. They're a lot more geometric, especially like the Hermes cabin. So I thought it was interesting that Percy's sort of approaching Dionysus. And Dionysus is sitting at what looks like an altar, although he's also got his, you know, can of Coke and his uh, deck of cards <laughs> right there. I also, I think now's a good time to cut in our clip where we asked about Mr. D's introduction from John, Dan, and James. I was also really fascinated by the portrayal of Mr. D, especially in the second episode, because that's when we really first get to meet him. Because he sort of serves as our introduction to the gods. Um, so I was really curious, uh, both from the writing and directorial perspective, what your approach was in terms of um, really nailing down that like first encounter. I mean, Jason's Jason. Higher Jason. Yeah, that part of the just wind him up and let him go. Make sure the camera is. 
Um, I think um, it it felt like a good opportunity to, um, in a in a very silly way, um, establish that idea that um, that the gods are going to use you to do things they can't do for themselves, um, and not have it feel like you're eating your vegetables when you were when you heard it. Um, and, and, and so I think, um, you know, in the midst of all of the confusion of, of Percy waking up in that camp, uh, it felt like the right time to just have somebody put that on the map and, and, and let it sit there. Um, and but also because Jason is so very human. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why he's a good introduction to the idea. Yeah. Because when Percy, because Percy like us, we're learning that that is Dionysus. And he does not seem like a god when you meet that guy. <laughs> and that is a very important part of it. So I think that gives a pretty good introduction in that terms too. Because people don't know the books, that's a really great idea. This guy's a god. You go, what? <laughs> and again, you're learning through Percy's eyes, which is what we're doing most of the time, which is what's really interesting. I, what struck me a lot was how human he seemed. So I was curious if that was the mm-hmm. direction they went in, and it was. Yeah, that's what I was thinking a lot about at the end of the scene. Oh, yeah. that That's actually where I made that note. Yeah. That's that really short moment with Grover where, like, you know, you've seen him acting like like Mr. D while he's talking to, to Percy. And then as soon as it's just Grover and Mr. D, you have that short moment where he says, like, he's almost like reassuring Grover. And he's like, you got the boy to camp alive. Don't overthink it. And then yeah. he just like gives him that look like like he just talks so, so plainly with him and he gets Grover's name right. And like, yeah. there's just clearly a, a slightly different relationship, obviously, that we know between Mr. D and the satyrs. But I think we're already seeing that that version of Mr. D that Percy gets isn't all of Mr. D. Mm. And like, we talked quite a bit about uh, the journey that will go on with Dionysus in these books and understanding his attitude towards heroes and everything. Mm. Um, so I like that already we're seeing that there is more to Mr. D just in our very first encounter with him. And then we get to meet Mr. Bruner, now as Chiron, get him fully introduced. The Chiron entrance is so funny. The way he just walks in and stands there is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> like, slow walk up. It's so silly. <laughs> so Chiron takes Percy on the Grand Tour. Yeah. Um, which is really cool. It looked like an archaeological site to me. Mm, yeah. The ones in Greece, specifically. No, so it looks a lot to me almost like um, the amphitheater that's sort of in that side of the hill. It reminds me a lot of the one that's at Dion, which is the archaeological site at the base of Mount Olympus. Um, Dion means like of Zeus, so it's like a sanctuary to Zeus. Um, But like the way that amphitheater is in the hill, the way they're all kind of like spaced out of like the big sets and things, like all the pathways, pathways and stuff, even like the grass really reminds me of that. Which is also interesting because those are definitely like overgrown and like less finished, if that makes sense. So they look like what they look like to us now because a lot of things like wood, for example, or leather, or any kind of uh, fabric don't survive in the Mediterranean, um, except yeah. for the cabins. The cabins are what those buildings would have looked like pretty accurately. Although some are more modern than others in the way they look. Like, you'll see some of them just look like log cabins versus some of them really look like Greek temples. Um, Especially what I was really excited about was they're painted. The outsides are painted, which is Mm -hmm. also the way Greek temples would have been. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about looking at, like, all of the random statues that are all over camp. Oh, yeah. Like, stark white statues. Mm -hmm. I, I also paused on the cabins a lot, but it wasn't. It was mainly so that I could try and figure out which cabin was whose. What we see, I think the first two that we see are Hera and Zeus. And then every other one that we see looks like, uh, it looks like we're looking at the male god side. 
because mm. um, we can identify easily like the blue one we know is Poseidon mm-hmm. and then we know Hermes at the end and so mm-hmm. I, it's easy to just kind of plug in you know Apollo is bright yellow <laughs> mm. it was I it made sense that we were only looking at the male god side since we're trying to find Percy's father um, yeah. even if we don't even realize that we're looking at the male gods what I was most focused on uh in this scene or this moment was the things that Chiron was saying because like mm-hmm. we don't get at least here we don't get the whole western civilization speech from him <laughs> mm-hmm. but he is still clearly very proud of this world and where he comes from like just the way that he talks about this world and how excited he actually seems to to introduce percy to camp and to his father's world there's a lot of respect there and there's a lot of faith there that percy just clearly doesn't share and that obviously disappoints chiron when Percy's immediately saying, like, there's no place for me here, that he doesn't want to be here. But I think that scene also sets up a series of subversions that are good, like, positive subversions for Percy. Yes, that there actually is a place for him here. One thing I also found interesting was, instead of Western civilization also, Chiron refers to the godly world as Percy's, quote, father's world. Mm-hmm. Which, I'm thinking through what that what that does. Just because, you know, you associate it with Western civilization, it's the whole, like, it's all around us, it's everywhere. It still feels just, like, massive, if you describe it that way, and using it, saying that it's your father's world. It does create this, like, mental image of it being sort of a separate world, but it's also, like, connecting it personally to him by saying, like, no, this is your father's world. Mm. Without, I guess, maybe fully thinking through the fact that he doesn't feel any connection to his father. <laughs> yeah, I just feel kind of hollow when he says that because of that. Where it's like, okay, but who is his father? Like, what does that mean? Yeah. And so that's that's what I mean when I say that, like, that's kind of what I'm getting from Chiron is that, like, he keeps he's going for awe. You should feel like this is an incredible thing that I'm introducing to you. This is your father's world. And Percy's just hitting, hitting him back with the like, that means nothing to me. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like a kind of expansion on that scene in the, in the first episode where he's just like, stories, you're special. And Percy's like, yeah, like, I don't want that. And then we go into the Hermes cabin, which yeah. has a central hearth, which I thought was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's not in every cabin, I think, because when we go into Poseidon's cabin later, there's not a hearth. There's a, well, I've been calling it a lustral basin, which is a thing that's in the Minoan palaces that Sir Arthur Evans named in case you couldn't tell. So I thought that was really interesting. I was like, oh, so there's not a hearth in every one. So we've got the hearth that means like family in the Hermes cabin. Like I said, I think it's really cool that the Montauk cabin has a hearth centrally. It also has stained glass on the wall. So again, we're kind of like recreating that a little bit here, creating this image of like comfort, like, Mm -hmm. you know, a nice, warm, comforting place. And it's interesting to me that both of those places have that, but we're procrastinating. Right. The star of (laughs) the star (laughs) of this moment. (laughs) This is when we meet Luke. And we meet Luke in another one of these positive subversions where Percy is expecting to get yeah. picked on. He's expecting the same old story. He's expecting not to fit in. But Luke is just immediately sympathetic and tells yeah. him that he's really sorry. And I think he is. Like, I genuinely think he feels for Percy. Yeah. <laughs> I guess sometimes when I'm reading the book, I'm not sure what's just like a play. What's uh, what's Luke making some moves and what's um, genuine. <laughs> But here, I just, I get the, I mean, maybe I'm falling for it, but (laughs) (laughs) I do think that Luke actually does immediately 
feel for Percy and care. Like, it seems like he really cares about what happens to... I mean, Luke just generally really have really has to care about what happens to demigods and all of the damage that the gods cause. And so, of course, he feels for Percy here. Yeah. Like, if I'm thinking about Luke, right, like, I feel like he's also watching the kids that Annabeth's watching just in a bit more of a subtle way. Like, he has an easier time of it being in the Hermes cabin. But, like, in this moment, he has no reason to believe that Percy is going to have anything to do with what's going on. Like, I feel like part, you can re, you can watch this episode from Luke's perspective and start to see the tricklings of like, oh, oh, mm-hmm. oh. Yeah. And I think the first one is when he wakes up from his Kronos dream, his next dream in the Hermes cabin. But before that, I think this is all completely genuine. Um, and we'll talk some more about Luke. We'll, we'll, we'll talk plenty about Luke in, in this episode, but we have um, some audio from, as you may have heard if you follow us on social media there was a round table a podcaster round table where essentially a, a group of the Percy Jackson podcasters were put in a, a zoom room with Rick and Becky and our questions were asked of them yeah we did not get to ask our own questions which was we did not get to ask our own questions really sad and in Mike Schubert's case very funny he, he wrote his questions out in a way where he was definitely like gonna ask them in a specific way <laughs> <laughs> in his specific tone of voice shout out to Mike but in this interview the question that we asked of them was what was it like to write Luke again and so we will put that clip in here as well as um we have one of the questions that that they were asked was about like which cabin they associate themselves with which I'm not actually sure who sent in that question, but we like the answer a lot, so <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna play that one too. Um, so I know you continue, you continue to write for the trio and past books outside the Percy Jackson series, but uh, one question was how does it feel to go back to characters you haven't written about in a while? Luke was one example that was given. We kind of revisit those characters and add some more you know things to them. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, all of these characters are very near and dear to my heart. They are like members of my family. Um, and well, Luke had to be much more three-dimensional. He, you know, he did. That he, was an important cast. Yeah. I mean, what, are, yeah. what is his motivation? Why is he, you know, doing the things he's doing and making the decisions he's making? I don't want to give too much away. Right. <laughs> but, yeah, but you're absolutely right. He, he needed to be... Uh, three-dimensional in a way that that hits you almost immediately because you're not spending a lot of time on screen in the season with Luke but he's such an important character for the season for the series that we needed to find a way to kind of reinvent him as someone who would immediately feel like a mentor figure, a really wonderful sort of big brother. And, and I can spoil this, I think. Um, in episode two, uh, when Percy first meets Luke, um, he just assumes that he's this big bully. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Luke surprises him. Yeah. So, uh, it's you a know, lovely moment. It, is, yeah. it is a lovely moment. Yeah. With obviously with the way in the books, uh, you, you, you're claimed by the gods, which of uh, the houses do you feel most comfortable being claimed by? Which one would you want to be a part of? <laughs> well, I don't think I've ever asked you that before. Do you have a, a, a cabin, a god? No, actually, I don't. I mean, you know, um, the, when we, the set locations, I mean, obviously, um, it, and you don't, you won't see this, you won't see this on screen, but there were a lot of blue screens there in, on our set, where the cabins are supposed to be and aren't, um, and the Hermes cabin, 
um, was one that I spent a lot of time in and I took pictures of and um, it really drew me in. Um, yeah. And there's things you don't see, like uh, there's um, a scattering of Myth and Magic cards on one of the cots in there um, where yeah. the, the um, people have been playing and, and yeah. it's wonderful. Hermes is the god of travelers. He's the mm -hmm. god of found families. So I think we both felt very comfortable there. I have to say that uh, when we ask our own sons who they would want as a godly parent, they say, why would I want a mom who's a goddess? I have Becky, <laughs> which is totally true, totally mm -hmm. fair. Best Thank mom you. right here, mm -hmm. Sally Jackson, supreme. <laughs> and then we get this bizarre Grover scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Made even stranger by the fact that it's like four minutes max. And we cut to black right before and right after. So it's this like really insulated little portion of the episode where Grover meets with we, we learned from the credits her name is Helena, who appears to be sort of like a motherly figure to Grover. It was funny because when we were at the premiere, Robert was sitting next to me and went through my exact thought process that I had the first time I watched it, but like in my ear, where at first they were like, Juniper? Uh-huh. <laughs> and then they were like, no, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was, I mean, my reaction was also like, Juniper already? <laughs> but yeah, we, we heard, we've heard a, a, a bit about her in a couple of interviews. She was mentioned in our interview with Dan and Tish at Comic-Con. I'm just very curious to learn more about her. I think it's really interesting that we are introducing a parental figure for Grover, who's one of the few characters where I think parental stuff isn't super explored. Yes. So I, I think we'll put a pin on this relationship and talk about it later in the context of, I think, parenthood and the whole series. Yeah, and I think just once we get more context for the whole relationship in general, I feel like there's a lot more to come from this just because we got such a, like, quick, mysterious glimpse yeah. at it. <laughs> I, I did enjoy, like, there was, like, these drums were going into this, like, cave vibe. Like, I, I talked a bit in our Bad Labyrinth episode about, like, the origins, uh, we think, of, like, Pan, and that is all very reminiscent of that yeah we get from this scene this sense like just from this very very brief moment of this much larger world outside of what the campers are experiencing at camp half-blood just mm. like made up of nature like it's all within a in a tree we're brought in by uh, a dryad and the music too it's just it just feels like this sort of otherworldly within within the otherworldly there's like mm. this thing that's even more otherworldly and it's inside camp and Grover's the only one allowed in. <laughs> but importantly, at the end of it, when Grover goes to Mr. D and Chiron, uh, we see him asked again to lie to Percy. Then we cut to my favorite recurring bit, <laughs> the Kronos dreams. And he's sitting at a hearth, though, so he starts at a fire. Yes. Well, the, the note that I made of that was that it was almost, like, slightly prophetic, because we'll later see Percy sitting by a fire, praying to his mom. A lot of yeah. a lot of hearths in this episode. A lot of looking for home and warmth, and the the fact that there's a hearth here with Kronos. Like the the others are uh, there's one in the Hermes cabin, around camp there are a couple, and in the Montauk cabin, and then there's the fire that Percy builds in the woods later. And so these are all they're all places where Percy is finding home or building home, and then here, in the desert, with Kronos, and he clearly knows quite a bit more about Percy than he did in the first dream. 
Like, we've come a long way from who are you. So, either he's keeping an eye on Percy from the pit, or someone's already telling him about him. So, it starts with Percy in his raincoat by mm-hmm. the fire. And he's watching the sand fall through his fingers. Which, the, the thoughts that I was having seeing that were partially you saying that the sand in the underworld could be, like, dust from monsters. But my first actual thought was that it was like sand in an hourglass um, because I knew I was in a Kronos dream. (laughs) But Kronos says, he left you here, left you with nothing. I know how you feel, which I'll note, we've actually heard said already in this episode by Luke, um, who said, I know what you're going through. And then he says, you want what's been taken from you. You want justice. And then the pit opens up. I think it's interesting him saying this like it's coming from the heart as much as Kronos has a heart you know this is definitely like how Kronos is feeling right like he's left here left with nothing you want what's been Mm -hmm. taken from you um but we do find out later in this episode a little more about how Luke would have been feeling very similar to Percy when Percy shows up at camp like he left you here with nothing like all of these feelings that Mm -hmm. Luke would be feeling towards the gods in general and his parent wanting justice yeah i want to put a star next to you want justice because we'll get from a couple of other characters in this episode various people telling percy basically what he should want yes i that was that was my main note on this actually <laughs> <laughs> should have said it faster i guess <laughs> Not that specifically. I thought it was really interesting taking that you want justice line. Because then immediately after this, we get the scene with Luke where he talks about glory, which we'll get into. But um, just to finish this point, I'm going to skip past. And then we flash way forward into the capture the flag scene where Clarice is confronting Percy. And she says, now glory is fine. Revenge is more fun. And Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that this episode is sort of painting that as an interesting dichotomy of, like, glory versus justice. Mm -hmm. Glory versus revenge. Revenge and justice. Yeah. And this idea that they're opposing goals from Clarice later. Well, you know, we know that both of those things are things that Luke is looking for. We'll, We'll get into this as we continue talking through Luke and Clarice's scenes. But speaking of... Luke. Luke is there to comfort Percy when he wakes up from the stream. And he has fully been given the sort of mentor, uh, leader through camp role. Like the, his lines here, some of them are taken from Annabeth. Mm. Because he's he is now the one who leads Percy through all of this. And that entire role that Annabeth played in the book isn't here anymore. Which, I mean, I'm not complaining about it. <laughs> I, I like that we're we're emphasizing Luke and Percy's relationship like this. Yeah. They, this was definitely a good move on their part. Yeah. To just kind of give them each these like solid roles that they play in this episode. Yeah. Also, the way that Charlie says Hermes is my father, he nailed that line delivery. Yeah. <laughs> All of Charlie's line delivery is so good. <laughs> um. So then we get the best part of the episode. Mm-hmm. As they're talking... Percy says, why is that okay? Why do they get to bring us here to just ignore some of us? And Luke says, you spent too much time trying to figure out why the gods do whatever it is they do. You'll drive yourself crazy. The sooner you stop worrying about that, the sooner you can enjoy what this place actually does offer. And Percy says, and what's that? And Luke says, glory. And I laughed out loud. (laughs) (laughs) I was more like, I more made that face of like, "Mm?" like I was like, oh. (laughs) And then 
I'll just finish the quote before we start talking about all of this. Luke says, Demigods have always fought for glory. They used to call it Kleos. It's like this stuff that attaches itself to your name, makes it bigger, scarier, more important. People listen closer when you talk. They work harder to be your friend, and they think twice about messing with you. So <laughs> that's when I that's when I yelled. I was like, ah! <laughs> my life was entirely validated. Those like 10 to 15 minutes that we spent just talking about that in our first episode all, all paid off in that moment. <laughs> but I'm I'm so in love with this, just like right up front, investing completely in an aspect of Luke's motivations that I think is really easy to miss in the books. Mm. Um, because it gets overshadowed by the like 15 other things going on with Luke but like we talked for you know 20 minutes straight about in our episode on the lightning thief it's such a crucial part of the speech that he gives at the end Mm -hmm. that where's the glory in doing what others have done and my talents were being wasted and how similar his speech was we said to the Achilles like undying glory speech like glory seeking is just so crucial to everything that we learn about Luke at the end of this book and seeing them actually planting it this early on, it's so gratifying. It's so exciting to see Luke being written by people who like have clearly thought about where he's coming from. And it's all just, I love how they're setting it up here as this like, this is how you make people listen to you and pay attention to you and look at you. And treating Cleos as like an actual thing that you are collecting. Mm-hmm. Hearing Luke use the word Cleos also tells me that he's been he's been doing some reading. Yeah, it's either that or it's something that people talk about at camp a lot. Mm -hmm. That was something I was sort of trying to figure out just because of the way that Clarice talks about it later. If this is just the way that that things work at camp Mm. or if this is a specifically Luke thing. Alternatively, if Clarice came to camp at the same time as Luke, maybe they were just all in the same orientation class. (laughs) Back then, they used to really talk about Cleos, and then now it's kind of died out, but... (laughs) But speaking of Clarice, we also get our Clarice intro here. Mm -hmm. Most of my thoughts on Clarice are going to come later, but the, the, the lines that Clarice says here, she says, look, you want attention around here. You better be ready for it when it comes, which I took to mean either. She's just referencing the fact that, like, Grover went around and told everyone the story, which he says when... Percy first wakes up Mm -hmm. um, and so this has been spreading around camp and so she assumes that he wants attention and that's why that story is traveling around because he's spreading it Mm. or she walked up and already knew exactly what Luke was probably talking about (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if Luke talks about that a lot though is the thing like I wouldn't be surprised she's like oh Luke's talking to the new kid I bet I know what he's telling him (laughs) sort of like oh yeah whenever there's a new kid that shows up Annabeth just stalks them for a while and Luke's like so chaos (laughs) (laughs) just everyone knows what those two get up to when there's a new person at camp But yeah, we'll come back to Clarice. But after this, Percy takes it a step further and says that like, oh, if I get glory, I can make my dad pay attention to me, basically. And then Luke has a wild line and says, you can't force the gods to do anything. Basically, the whole time Luke's just like, "Let's not, let's not take it too far, kid. Let's, 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 let's simmer down. Let's, let's take it back a notch." (laughs) And then Percy says, "Yeah, but it would make it harder for him to pretend I don't exist." And I'm just keeping an eye on this exchange because it's being played like you can't force the gods to do anything, but maybe, like, I hadn't thought of that before. But we know, like, he's already stolen the bolt at this point. Like, he's already trying to force the gods into a war. And when we read The Lightning Thief, we said that this 
was maybe him also trying to force Hermes to look at him like Percy is now. So I was trying to figure out how to read the maybe in this scene. Oh, I think he's been think. I think he's thinking about his own question in this part. As in, he's sort of like maybe, maybe like not in my experience, but maybe. See, I I wasn't sure whether I should be reading it as that or if I should be reading it as like Luke being impressed or like seeing himself in Percy immediately and like. Like, Luke probably wants to get Percy's dad's attention, too. Like, he wants to know who Percy's father is, too. And so it's like a, you know, he has thought about that before. And maybe, maybe, maybe someday. Maybe that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Maybe. <laughs> mm. We then get a montage of Percy trying to figure out what he's good at. But it was interesting that they're doing archery and then forgery. So it's like, oh, we're doing Apollo and then Hephaestus. Right. Who are the two most, like, prolific gods for children, besides like Hermes. So it feels like he's taking him through like, I'm starting to maybe think there's something up with this kid. Let's take him through and see. Let's let's see what he's good at in that. Like, let's let's put him to the test. Like maybe that's kind of where a lot of this is coming from, from Luke, just trying to figure out who his dad is, while mm-hmm. also at the same time realizing like, this kid seems like he thinks a lot like me. Like he might be exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah. Like I think this is definitely something that they probably do with most new campers. Like, I think there's a dual motive of like, yeah, let me help this kid out. Let me help him figure it out. Let me take him through the paces. But I think there's also maybe a little bit of a motive of like, okay, but like, we should probably figure this out because I need to figure out if this kid's going to be a problem for me. Before we go any further, we got to ask John Steinberg about his thoughts on Cleos because we know he has them. Uh-huh. <laughs> This was an interview with John and Dan and James, which we uh, also brought up in the last episode. Please enjoy. (laughs) Speaking of mythology, though, uh, so something that Phoebe and I have talked about a lot is Luke's relationship to Glory and Achilles. So I was extremely excited when I heard him actually say the word Kleos in episode two. (laughs) 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 Like, let out a yell excited um because it's a pretty loaded word in greek uh so i was uh, and i'm sure there's a lot more to talk about once we get to the end of the season but i was really curious about your approach to this introduction of luke um big shout out to professor naj um at uh, at harvard um that was my my freshman um classical heroes class was all Kleos and nostos and, and and um and I think is is hopefully all through this this show. Um, also a good friend of Rick's, um, as it turns out. Um, but um, I think uh, it it kind of makes sense to me that you know if you're if you're Luke and you don't realize you're in somebody else's book, you're in your own story. Um, and the idea of serving the gods um, is just not a story you want to be in. Um, this this idea of um, there being something in it for you um, that you deserve, um, you know, for all of this, the the sacrifices you've had to make and the things you've had taken away from you um, makes sense. And then to be able to tie that into something that's really foundational to, to all of these stories, canonically, mythically, um, you know, the idea of, um, you know, glory seeking and, and, and homecoming and, and how, you know, and the tension between those two ideas is really all of these stories. Um, I I was um, 
I was very excited that James shot that wide in a way that nobody made me take that line out. I was afraid that wrote it. And I was afraid that when I when I wrote that there's no way this is going to show, but I'm doing it. And um and it made it. It yeah. made it. I was very excited. I'm glad you noticed that. Yeah, you and Dan made it once. That was awesome, guys. So Percy completes his training montage. No mm-hmm. no sword fighting in sight yet, which mm-hmm. I have thoughts on that I'll come back to later, but we then see Percy sitting with uh luke and chris it's crazy that chris is involved that he's so close with these two specifically (laughs) i love it it's so good and then percy's like oh is there a goddess appointment and chris says oasis which is a deep cut that's a deep cut and he's clearly been thinking about it for a long time like he's (laughs) considered this one (laughs) well though what's also interesting is i looked up this god because i goddess because i was like oh i'm curious where she's referenced and it's in Hesiod one of the most ancient like the theogony is a bunch of tales of like gods and stuff but it'd be always the part where Oisius is in is like the beginning of the world like chaos and all that fun stuff so I'm sitting here like oh why is Chris Rodriguez looking up the most ancient account we have of you know the origin of the titans I don't know why why is, why, why, why are we re- why, why are we doing, doing that, that reading why, why, why are we looking that up? I don't, I don't know. Why would he do such a thing? <laughs> this is what I'm saying. They're doing research, Phoebe. This is what I was trying to, what I was saying before. <laughs> Luke's been doing research. They've been reading Homer. They've been reading Hesiod. Mm. And then Luke explains the way that uh, making offerings to the gods works. He tells him, you burn what you'll miss the most. Um, then they know you really mean what you're about to say, so they'll listen. And then Percy goes and builds his own fire in the forest and burns <laughs> The candy that his mom gave him. And that alone, <laughs> that I know, alone I was like, ugh. made my heart clench. And then he starts praying to his mom. And I was yeah. like, oh, my God, <laughs> I loved this. I loved this so, so much that he hears that this is how you can get in touch with the gods. And we've seen him throughout this episode trying to find a way to get in touch with his father and to get him to notice him. But when he actually hears that there is a way that he can reach out. His immediate thought just goes straight back to his mom. Like, all this always just goes straight back to Sally. And it's not even, like, a prayer. It's just, like, this is the call you get when I go to a new school. Like, it's, he's not praying to her. He's just trying to call her. He's just trying to talk to her. And he's trying to talk to her because he's actually having an okay time. Like, and he wants to talk about it. He wants to talk to his mom because he made friends. It's just, like... (laughs) like the two points he hits in this are just mom i have friends and i i am gonna find my dad that anger at his father the like ignoring me is one thing but he doesn't get to ignore you i'm gonna make him come down here i'm gonna make him see me i'm gonna make him see see us both i love hearing lines come out of percy's mouth that would have come out of luke's mouth (laughs) yeah i wrote that exact quote down and then i wrote very luke of him like, I, I feel like they are really doubling down on the sort of Luke and Percy as eventually being sort of foils in that, like, they, they both started in the same place and then took very different paths. It's the, it's the good kid reprise of it all. <laughs> but it just feels like with the chrono streams and with Percy's mindset in this episode and then like later when we get the story about Thalia, it's almost like we're watching another version of Luke's story when he first arrived at camp. Like we're seeing this kid who feels abandoned by their father and then experiences this massive loss the moment that they get to camp and so comes in 
angry and looking for someone to blame. And with Kronos in the back of their mind, telling them, I know how you feel. Let me help you. And I also, unrelated to this, I was also thinking about, you know, it, even though this isn't quite how the offerings to the gods works, like, he's not that far off. Like, we'll mm-hmm. learn much later, like, summoning ghosts from the underworld is obviously a, a much more involved process, but it, it is offering up food to the dead in the same way you'd offer up food to the gods. And then Percy returns, and we get our iconic Supreme Lord of the Bathroom scene. His little, hey guys, can't sleep? <laughs> I was like, you know what's coming. Like, what? <laughs> and it's so interesting that this is sort of the welcome he was expecting, right? Like, this is yeah. what he was expecting. And he goes into it just like all smiles, which is just so funny to me. He's like, oh, there they are. Okay, now now I get my He's check. like, ah, here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> But we get a line from Clarice in this scene that I've been tracking the word special, but uh, Clarice says, uh, every new kid shows up here and they think they're special. Do you think you're special? And Percy says no. Yeah, he doesn't. Because, because like I mentioned last episode, Percy does not like the word special. Percy does not like the word special. It feels condescending and like someone is like classifying him as something or trying to explain him to himself. And he doesn't like that. But at the same time, it's something that it seems like every kid here is is striving for and is trying to achieve is is glory, is to be special. Which, I mean, it kind of def- depends on how you're going to define special because the two people who we've associated the word special with this point are Chiron and Sally because they're the duo of used stories to try and explain to Percy why he's special. And we've heard both of them later in the episode, we'll hear Chiron tell Percy that he's singular. And that's also the word that Sally used at the end of the yeah. last episode. And so if your definition of special is similar to the word singular, I mean, he kind of is. <laughs> this is where I think we can get into, like, why is Clarice so bothered by this? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because Clarice, what we get from this scene and from our later scene with her, she wants very badly for Percy to admit that he made up the fight with the Minotaur. Which you figure when you hear it from the glory rules that we've learned so far... You'd think Clarice doesn't like Percy taking all of that glory for himself, but later in the episode, we'll hear Clarice say, yeah, glory's fine, but revenge is more fun. And also in The Last Olympian, we talked a lot about Clarice's relationship with glory as the sort of Achilles stand-in, and we landed closer to Clarice caring about respect and reputation, and that's where I think I see this coming from. I was thinking about it like if the Aries cabin are supposed to be the biggest, baddest, toughest campers and like then this 12 year old shows up that's just killed a minotaur by himself. The minotaur is probably the most badass monster kill the camps had in a minute and it happened like right there. So that's definitely probably weighing on her where she's just like, that should have been me. That's I'm the one I'm the one that should have bagged the baddest monster, not this 12 year old. They're all probably sitting there like, okay, well, he's not one of ours. Well, how do they know? Well, that's a good point. They don't really test him, do they? Right, and that's like something that I've always thought is that like Ares probably should have been the first thought when it's Percy showed up. It's because he's blonde. It's because he's blonde. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I'm always, I am always in the book and here. I'm always surprised that no one thinks that's a, that's an Ares kid. Yeah, but I do think it sort of sets up this precedent of like we hear about glory from Luke and then we immediately kind of see that in action a little bit of how it's a finite resource that people are going to fight you over yeah it's like oh you have glory I'm going to challenge you yeah which is 
why I'm excited to see more of Clarice, because we know seeking glory and seeking respect kind of seem like the same thing, but there is a line there, and that's why Clarice is brushing off glory at the end of this episode. And also, a part of what she wants is, is the same thing that all of them want, which is for her dad to look at her and treat her with some respect. It's the kind of thing that you just, you have to like peel it back. It seems like it's easy on the surface, but you have to keep peeling it back with Clarice. Also, I think the five years at camp here plays up the difference as well. Because I think, I mean, I guess we'll find out in the show if she's a full-time camper, but I'm pretty sure in the book she is, which means that she, like Annabeth and Luke, have not left. Well, except for Luke, actually, because he had the quest. But she, like Annabeth, has not left camp in five years and has not really had a chance to, like, prove herself. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, Percy becomes Supreme Lord of the Bathroom. Yes, and still doesn't put two and two together. <laughs> and we get our first real Annabeth scene. Yes. And we still, we just, like, learn nothing. <laughs> I know. I feel like it's very book accurate, though, though, where she's yeah. just, like, I've been waiting for something like this to happen. And, like, she's seen the water. So she's, like, okay. Like, it's very unambiguous from her sightline. And the fact that she's probably, again, just been with her invisibility cap the whole time, because that's why we don't see her. I'm, assu- I'm assuming. She's just been following around with her invisibility cap on. Probably. And, like, that's the moment she takes it off and she's, like... Yeah, like, okay, you've proven my theory. Let's talk. She's very, like, I'm, I'm not giving you any information until you ask me for it. And then the information I give you might not even be true. Because, like... <laughs> When she's like, oh, I'm just trying to figure out if if we can win Capture the Flag with you. And then, like, we know that's not true. <laughs> but I get the sense from the way she delivers the line almost that when she's saying win Capture the Flag, she means get Poseidon to claim you, not, not like, win Capture the Flag. Right. Because we'll learn immediately from Luke that, like, this is how you get glory. <laughs> also, just, like, she's he says the line, like, she's thinking nine steps ahead. And it's like, that's nine steps ahead. That's... yeah. That's about exactly nine nine scenes ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I think he says four steps ahead. So it might be exactly oh, four steps. steps. Four scenes. Mm. <laughs> mm. But yeah, she places herself right where he'll see her very intentionally, like inviting questions, but without anticipating answering most of them. And this is how we meet Annabeth. Keep, keeping true to the Annabeth remaining a little bit of a mystery throughout the first book feeling. I did think it was interesting, like, because I think reading the book, you know, you get told all of their ages, but I remember as a 12-year-old, I'm reading it, and I'm like, Luke, like, they say he's, like, what, 18? What What does a 19-year-old even look like? No. And I think I pictured him as, like, a 14-year-old when I was re- I remember when I was reading it. So I'm like, oh, yeah, he's, like, not that much older. It's fine. This is just wh- who we hang out with. It's interesting, like, an actual 18-year-old referring to an actual 12 year old as like a mastermind behind everything (laughs) and like that's what i was thinking is that he talks about her like oh she's the greatest warrior in camp she's the head counselor and then it cuts to 12 year old and she's she's just teeny (laughs) no you can't say that because we're her height we learned in person that we're her height (laughs) that's true but it's it's building up the mystery of annabeth because you see someone that much older than her treating her with that much respect and it's like, how did this happen? Who is this girl? I To me, it was just like something that I'd never really thought about before. Because in my head, like Luke is like a couple years older, not like older, older. Um, at least when I was like first reading it. And I think the impression kind of stuck. Because I was reading the books when I was the same age as Percy and Annabeth. So I'm like, yeah, I'm almost an adult. I was not mm-hmm. almost an adult, but I thought I was for sure. <laughs> so that's something else that stood out to me too, is when Percy is like, oh, I've really made some friends. Where I'm like, those are... 
like 19 year olds dude yeah. <laughs> but i mean that's what i feel like that's kind of what you think when you're that young you're like no that's you think- the, yeah like i believe him it's just me as an adult watching it is like oh honey this is giving me kindergartner sitting at the back of the bus energy uh <laughs> like i certainly believe those fifth graders were my besties but like they definitely did not see me that way <laughs> I, d- I think it seems like Luke and Chris do enjoy Percy's company yeah. and see him. To me, they see him as like a mini them. Like Luke especially seems really genuine in wanting Percy around. And I think Luke has to care about other demigods. Like that's one of the things that you have to set up at the beginning. And then for Percy, I, for, for yeah. obvious reasons, has kind of latched onto them because they're being very nice to him. And he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have anyone anymore now that he's sort of pushed Grover away and Grover is avoiding him so at least Luke and Chris I know we see a couple of other Hermes campers like hanging around them but at least Luke and Chris have become sort of pillars in his life because he didn't have any Mm. so then we get the intro to capture the flag I love Luke's line at the beginning of this scene where he's like, you're going to love this. <laughs> Camp-wide, mock warfare, all glory to the victors. I was like, maybe you love that. <laughs> it was just Luke assumes Percy thinks exactly like him. Like at this point, mm-hmm. it seems like like he really thinks, oh, this kid is just like me. It's just the way he, it seems like he thinks that seeking glory is something that like Percy really, really wants. Well, like it's just sort of a means to, it's Mm -hmm. a means to an end for Percy. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Like for Percy, it's a means to an end, which is I think what we see in that scene we were talking about for a while between them where he's like, oh, and then I can use it to get this Mm -hmm. versus for Luke that it is an, it is its own reward. Beyond that, he's just made it like, it seems a, a core part of who he is. Because he brings it up every time you see it. <laughs> yeah. I love that he calls her Annabeth his little sister, too. Yes. And he says that he's always on her side. I was like, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> this is also the scene I did the statue deep dive on because we see a big statue in the middle of the field while they're drilling. And I was like, who is that? But interestingly, my break in the case was when we went to the premiere because this statue is in the background of the Met shot, this exact statue. That statue is in the Met collection. I was looking at it and I was thinking, oh, well, it's in the middle of the field where they do like military drills. So that's, I probably, and it's, it's, it's a guy with like longer hair and like these animal skins. And then there's a, a smaller figure of a woman next to him who's got like a veil and a candle. And at first glance, I was like, I think that's Ares and Eris. Because when you see... Ares is usually depicted with Eris, like that's pretty common. I looked it up, and it's a statue of Dionysus. Ah. And the the woman next to him, they think is Spes. It's a Roman reproduction of a Greek bronze statue. They think um, Spes, which is Hope, the goddess of hope. I was like, oh, Dionysus and Hope is like the giant statue in the middle of the field. That's interesting. It's interesting because this is like clearly an older vision of him. And it doesn't really make sense for his statue to be in this field. Like it makes more sense for it to be an Aries statue, which is why I originally thought of it was it was an Aries statue. So it's clearly like something that was put there when Mr. D took over as camp counselor. <laughs> and like he definitely probably, unless this was like the thing where they knew he was, because this happened where... um there's a point in Athens's history where they'd accidentally bet on the wrong horse two Roman civil wars in a row. So the first time they bet against Sulla, and as you might have gathered from my short rant on Sulla, one of my favorite chaotic historical figures of all time, 
he came to Athens and was like, you bet against me in the Roman Civil War. And he sacked Athens, which was bad calamity. It was terrible. And then, however many years later, uh, Athens once again bets on Mark Antony over Augustus. And obviously Augustus wins. And so they're like, oh, no, (laughs) he's going to come sack us again. Mm. And so they built a giant statue of Agrippa. Uh, which is uh, Augustus's general, he was sending to Athens on a horse and put it just right on top of the building that's the entrance to the Acropolis. And they were like, maybe if we do that, he won't be mad. So I wonder if like maybe that was the logic of like, well, Mr. D is going to be pissed by the fact that he's been exiled here as camp counselor. So maybe <laughs> we put a giant statue of him in the middle of camp. He won't mm. like be mean. He, maybe he'll be a little nicer. That makes a lot of sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) That's my headcanon now. (laughs) Yeah, it makes me wonder when the other, because we see a couple of other tiny little statues. It makes me wonder when those were put in too. But, um, so Luke tells Percy about Annabeth in this scene, which I love that we're seeing this relationship from Luke's perspective from the beginning, Mm -hmm. because in the book, I find that a lot of their relationship comes from Annabeth. Like, I actually can't remember hearing much of Luke talking about Annabeth. Mm. And so I like that we're getting to know that relationship from Luke's perspective, which we continue to do in the next scene when he starts talking about Thalia. And that he's the one who tells that story. Because in the book, that information comes from Grover. But we're not talking to him right now. So <laughs> it was funny because I, when I watched it, I was like, there's no way they give Percy all of this information at this point in the story already. Mm. But then I looked back and Grover does <laughs> at this exact <laughs> part of the book. He tells Percy all of this. And I was like, that's crazy. Honestly, Lightning Thief musical, I think they did a good job with that, though. I mean, The Tree on the Hill is the most incredible yeah. song ever no, written. No, 11 o'clock number, all the way. Let's do it. Like... But it's also like, if you do want Luke to tell this story, you have to put it up front like this. And Mm. when you have Luke tell this story, it does sort of double duty and continues the Luke and Percy parallel because both lost people on the hill. So that's another place where you can have Percy see himself in Luke. I think to quote you, she's Mm. a ghost in the whole first book. So I like that we're bringing her in to be You know what's hilarious? That's a great point, Past Phoebe, but uh, you know what's hilarious? (laughs) (laughs) My sister's boyfriend is watching the show right now with no, you know, he's never read the books or anything. He doesn't know anything. And his theory is that Thalia is still alive somewhere and she's the real villain. That Like, that's going to be the twist. He thinks Luke is so nice and so is sure he's going to die at some point because he's too nice. And that Thalia is the real villain. You gotta film his reaction to episode eight. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, yes, set up the ghost from the beginning. And clearly yeah. people are feeling her. If that's if that's a theory that's out there, people are feeling her. <laughs> but the way the, the, the writing is tricking us is it's like, we're building a strong foundation of Luke for the exposition. And then so that he can set up Annabeth, who is now going to take over as like the real other main character. Yeah. And I really think it does trick you the way this is written. Because as soon as they're on the quest... We've got the shoes, but that's pretty much it. And I'm sure we're going to get the Iris message at some point as well. But like, I like that a lot of what he is doing is, is it is because we know setting him up very much as a character, but it's also sort of cloaked in like... I'm the exposition character. Exposition that's important to Percy. And that's also important to setting up Annabeth. Because I do think, I love the way she's introduced of like, 
you hear all the rumors first. You hear all the, the reputation first, and then you get yeah. the myth, the legend herself. They do a good job of like, because I, I feel like a lot of the time when I give people my age, the lightning thief, they all guess that it's Luke. Oh, yeah. And so I, I feel like kind of disguising him as sort of this mentor exposition figure who's going to help Percy and like really just establishing him as that while also kind of dropping in those very small hints that like only we hopefully will recognize. Mm-hmm. It's it seems like it's working so far. But anyway, I I love the Annabeth Luke interaction also that we get in the next part of this scene where she's sort of giving orders and he says, "Yes, ma'am." Yeah. <laughs> Joint leadership. <laughs> I got weirdly fixated on the fact that they're the only ones wearing pauldrons, which are shoulder armor. And then I noticed when there's that scene of Luke fighting off a bunch of Arya's kids, the girl who surrenders to him is also wearing pauldrons. Mm. And I was like, oh, I think this is what the commanders wear. This marks the commanders, Ah. which is important and interesting because Clarice does not have pauldrons on. So that made me be like, wait, is Clarice not in charge? She must be. Or maybe they're the cabin leaders. Maybe that's it. I'm assuming that maybe the girl that surrenders to Luke, maybe she's the actual head of the Ares cabin and Clarice is just like, I don't know. It may be interesting to be like, what's the Clarice lore here? Like, is she the head? Is she in charge? Or is she just sort of like the best warrior? Is she the Achilles? She's not in charge. She's just the best warrior. Mm. This scene um, with Luke fighting, I remember when we were talking about, um, because we saw this clip at Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when we were talking about it, I brought up the line that Luke has to Chris because to me it felt like, you know, out of context, it felt like them talking about secret things <laughs> <laughs> when he says, uh, he's talking about Percy and he says, when it's time, he's going to be ready. I know it. And so in my head, I was like, you can't have Luke talking to Chris on their own and expect me not to like put my own chrono spin on it. Mm. I didn't get it, but then you pointed it out, and I'm rewatching it, and I'm like, I do think that line has a little extra weight to it. It does. There's just, like, a tiny little bit. It's like the, there's a little bit of extra weight that the scene is putting on it. I think it's, like, an Easter egg. I think it's just, like, you go back, and you're like, ah. That's what I still am sort of, like, I, I think that's what that is. It's very subtle, but I'm also, like, if that is what that is, that means that I need to figure out what it means and what they're talking about. <laughs> Because it very easily could be like, you know, they both obviously at this point have have their plans. And if they're thinking, because I mean, Percy is a great candidate for them at this point. Yeah. If they're thinking we should bring Percy on board, Luke probably sees a lot of potential in him. And Chris might think, you know, this kid, we haven't even figured out what he's good at. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I don't I don't know if he's worth it. He has our attitude, but like, I don't know what else he can do. And so that's where the line when it's time he's going to be ready. I know it might be. Com- that's where that line might be coming from. Mm. But I could just be reading into things in the way that I love to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think there's something there. I do. I think that's I do. I, I just it just seems like the way that there's like a pause before he says it. There's just the way that yeah. it's framed. It just feels like a line that you're supposed to come back to. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I do love the start to capture the flag. We get finally like we get our second Percy Annabeth scene. And here's something I noticed the most recent time I watched. So when Percy trips and falls, he's trying to fix the strap. And he trips and falls because he's not paying attention to the ground because he's trying to fix the strap on his armor. So I love how that frames this scene differently to me because he's trying to fix his strap while talking to Annabeth, trips and falls on his face, gets up and is like, okay, and she doesn't help him at all. But then like the scene ends with her fixing the strap that did cause that is like the reason why he tripped in the first place. 
I didn't notice that. That makes sense because then it's sort of like Annabeth was was still paying attention to him. She was walking ahead of him and like was clearly, you know, acting like she wasn't paying any attention to him, but she still had an eye back there. She's paying attention. I think it's also a little like a little moment of like, she's not out to get him, you know? No. Yeah. And I think at this point, she's also figured out that he's he's probably a, a Poseidon kid. He must be the one. I wonder how much of like what's going on with the gods and everything that she knows, because I think in the book, she or at least people talk about how it seems like there is something going on with the gods right now and mm-hmm. that like everyone's sort of aware of it that like something seems wrong i think she's the one who says that she from what she's heard knows that the gods are angry and that something is missing because in the book she always seems like slightly more in the loop than anyone else because of her relationship with chiron yeah something else we don't really see is it is it the chiron and annabeth relationship mm-hmm. no not yet so then we get the fight with clarice it's so good. Like the choreography, the way it's done is something that sometimes bothers me in group fight scenes when the people that are in the group are not using their numbers effectively. But I also do think that something that this does kind of establish, and again, this makes me wonder, is Clarice the general here? It shows to me that she's not a very, she's not as strategic. Like her and her in compared to Annabeth, like that's just not a part of her character. She's much more like yeah, I'm driven by revenge. I'm driven by like just being a fighter. And I think it shows in the scene as well where there's the, you know, the two other kids that are helping her out, but none of they're never like coordinating attacks. They're not really like doing anything. They're just kind of like basically keeping Percy pinned enough so that Clarice can just kind of wail on him. Yeah. This scene also, it's why I I forgive them for not including the sword fighting. <laughs> mm. Because I think this is the answer to we'll find what you're good at. Mm. I, because we've seen now these two fights, like the Minotaur fight and the Clarice fight, where like in the books, he has other things at his disposal that he uses. Like in the Minotaur fight, it's a lot of like using a lot of strategy, using the um, the trick that his mom uses here in the show, the bullfighting trick to try and get on its back and everything. But in the show, he's just going on pure instinct and is able to finish that fight. And then here in the book he's he's losing this fight and then falls into the water and then that gives him the extra strength that he needs to be Clarice but here he doesn't end up in the water it just comes to him naturally so I think that this is it's fighting fighting is what he's good at I was surprised that we got rid of him falling into the water at first because I was like oh well that's like the big hint like that's it's almost like Poseidon claims him because he can't deny it anymore yeah um, in the book but here it's just he finds exactly what he's good at and that's when Poseidon claims him kind of exactly like they were he and Luke were kind of hoping would happen yeah it's interesting also because I just realized that at this point the only person he's not at some point felt betrayed by is Luke yeah what Luke said would happen happened look at that Luke is just like a really supportive friend yeah. he, he would never betray Percy Jackson I love that betrayal is just being a thing in the show I'm I love that. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think you were about to say that shot of, of Luke and Chris looking at Luke. <laughs> yep. And that's the moment where they're like, uh-oh. You see it all come together in their heads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Percy's like staring at it. He doesn't look happy to be claimed. Doesn't look happy, but does seem, you know, that kind of kicked puppy look isn't on his face anymore. <laughs> but yeah, this wasn't at all the glorious moment that they were kind of looking for to Percy. This was scary and upsetting. (laughs) Like at the end of the scene, he just looks wrecked, but then immediately gets the message from his dad that like 
this is what he's looking for from him. And then he's taken to cabin three. There's like cages. There's it looks like the natural history museum, like the with all the skeletons hanging down. Mm. Yeah. It's also got, like I said, a lustral basin in the middle instead of a hearth. Yeah, and because of that, and because it's so blue and like kind of dark in there, it just versus the Hermes cabin, you can feel how empty it is. The Hermes cabin just feels so lived in. There's so many people in there. There's so many bunks and, but it's not like cramped like it's described in the books. No, yeah, it feels really warm, cozy. Yeah, it's not like cramped. It's it's comfortable and like full of people. I think also like me saying it looks and feels kind of like a museum like I mean that like it doesn't feel like a place that people have lived it feels like yeah a museum which is true because people have not lived there in quite some time Mm -hmm. and I was just you know after an episode of a lot of warm lighting and orange and just all of that color it's that return to the blue Mm mm-hmm which if I can, if I can transition us, <laughs> we did get the chance to ask Dan and Tish, our our production designer and costume designer, about uh, the use of color and about the cabins. So here's a little bit of their perspective on creating camp. Something I've been really struck by is the overall tone and color language that you're both using, like because it's it isn't necessarily bright, really. It is in moments, but... It's a little bit moody, a little bit blue. You've got some muted colors, which I love. Um, So can you guys talk a little bit about the color story that we have happening here? Uh, From the set point of view, it's it's really about trying to uh, be in in the in the book, in the in the place. Uh, And, and, you know, like Cap Half-Blood, for example, is uh, all about um, bringing color that's true to the god that it represents, you know. And of course, Aries would be black and gold, and uh, Poseidon would be various aquas. Um, Hermes is all about uh, comfort colors, creams and greens, and things like that. Um, and I guess. Uh, the the other one that was at the beginning anyway that was uh, not challenging but it was it was a sort of a step away from the norm was the Montauk cabin you know and going for those mm-hmm. sun bleached colors and it's it's as though there's a, a group of people have owned this property and each one has added something each summer that they've come to stay there. I'll bring a pot of paint and I'll paint a wall, you know, and they paint one wall and, and then summer's over and they go home. And so so you get a different pot of paint next year. Uh, so that concept of having something with a history uh, and giving the history through colour. Tish? Well, I, th- I would... Use as an example. Um, first of all, I just want to say that we, you know, we had a lot of dialogue back and forth between our our departments as to, oh yeah, you know what would you know what was cohesive, what would work in the environment. I was always checking, you know, to see if if they had already started work on a particular set. I had the concern of like Dan's building, you know, and and painting like specific sets, whereas I've got three kids that have to go through all of these sets and worlds. And so I had to choose colors that I knew would work everywhere. 
because they have to be recognizable. They have to stand out. They have to work together, but they can't be jarring when they go into the areas which are devoid of color. They still have to be visible when they go into areas that are full of color, like the, you know, the casino in Las, in Las Vegas. And we still want to be able, you know, to track them and, and, and see them. And, you know, just taking, for example, I would say Annabeth, she had like a jean shirt and a striped t-shirt. You would not recognize what the, the, you know, those things look like from the beginning, like to the final process, because we just over dye, over dye, remove color, dye, you know, color, throw color back in. It was a continual process until we found something that we thought, you know, would, would work. And as another example, the uh, color orange for the uh, t-shirts at Camp Half-Blood. That was hours and hours and days of dying. We first had all of our oranges color tested to see what would work again under, you know, like gloomy skies and the bright sunlight and inside the cabins. Um, and of course, you couldn't get that color of orange. So we had to dye everything, but there were limited quantities. So we were working with t-shirts that were white to start with, t-shirts that were yellow to start with, t-shirts that were melon colored to start with. And we had to find a way of making sure that we could get that perfect color of orange uh, with all of our disparate uh, sources. And uh, they all have to be like, hand dyed in order to have the color fixed if you you know don't fix your colors and you can only do that hot water in a pot like stirring uh then every time you wash something it's going to go so there was a lot of uh we had a massive dye department there was a lot of dyeing a lot of over dyeing and you know i think it was well worth it i think it worked really well cohesively together with the other departments and then our last scene for this episode is Percy being called to the big house where they finally tell him the plot of the book. Um, they tell him that Zeus's master bolt has been stolen and that he is the prime suspect, but that they believe that the bolt has been taken by Hades. So he is give being given a quest to go to Hades to try and get the bolt from him, which Percy refuses completely. You know, we've spent this whole episode thinking, like, I need to get in touch with my father. I have to get his attention, all of this. And then the second that Percy actually has these opportunities to get in touch with his father, either with, you know, offering some food to him, he doesn't use that opportunity. And then this time, you know, he's been claimed. His father is literally needs him, is what Chiron is telling him right now, is that his dad needs him right now. Um, and Percy refuses. I was thinking about subversion a little bit here. Because... I think something that's really interesting is I feel like if the events that happened at the end of and and it the color story I think informs this as well where I feel like if the events that happened at the end of this episode had happened before he had all of his expectations about Camp Half-Blood before he'd like met Luke and everything before they were subverted getting you know at the beginning as well where he's like where do I belong where do I fit in and all the stuff that at the beginning of the episode there's sort of like painted as like this is the pathway to getting what you want Percy 
then all of a sudden we've got all this middle stuff where all of those, the rest of his expectations get subverted. He's starting to feel like he belongs. And then it's at that point that he actually starts to get the recognition of being claimed, a chance to actually connect with his dad. And But all of the stuff in the middle has now made those almost redundant because what he actually wants are those connections that he's forming. He wants, like, a, a home. He wants... He's lost. He just needs some amount of, like, positive stuff going on. And I think that's what that this episode's arc kind of shows. It's like, how did we get to him refusing? It's because of all the stuff that happened in the middle. Right. The nostos of it all. But, yes, Percy obviously does still resent his father and does still have all of those feelings. But, like, I think we talked about in our Lightning Thief episode, a lot of the core of what Percy is looking for a lot of the time is safety and security. Mm. And I think the longer he spends with Luke and in the Hermes cabin, the more he feels like he's found that. Or like he might be able to find that at camp. And also, like he says here, his mom gave her life so that he could be safe here. Mm -hmm. And so giving up that security to go on a quest like this would be throwing out his mom's sacrifice. And as much as he would like to confront his dad, his dad just isn't really a part of a lot of the things that he actually wants here. Yeah, I think that's the thing, though, is like we see him going to pray to who we think we think he's praying to his dad, but he's praying to his mom. Like it's those levels, too, where he starts the episode just feeling really lost and not knowing where to turn. So he thinks, OK, I guess my father, because this is his world, I'm going to turn to him. Mm -hmm. And I think the more into the world he actually gets, the more he's like, oh, actually, I wasn't looking for my dad. I was looking for anybody who understands me. It feels like he's he's found a solid, like a couple of solid people and solid ways that he thinks he can move forward. And then Grover comes in and says, actually, your mom is still alive and you can go get her. It almost, it, it like interrupts the the healing process <laughs> mm. where it's this kind of like he's he's gotten past denial. He's working through all of that. And then Grover comes in and is like, head right back to step one. <laughs> Your mom is still mm. alive and you can go get her. And obviously that changes everything. So, beads. My first thought was a hearth. Specifically the one in the can that Percy makes. Mm. I think my bead's one of the like graffiti drawings of heroes in the Hermes cabin. That's my bead. Okay, I'll have to actually Next see Next time them. you watch it, just <laughs> pause it when Luke's talking to Percy okay. at first. It's like a graffitied like warrior with a sword. Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Next time we will be discussing. I was about to say reading. We will be discussing. <laughs> we visit the Garden Gnome Emporium, which no spoilers. Incredible episode. I can't wait to talk about this one. <laughs> And we will be doing it with some special guests. So if you have questions or thoughts that we should include in our eventual season one wrap up, you can get in touch at monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com or on social media at PJOPod, on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also hear all of our predictions on our Patreon if you sign yes, up. Yes, hang on. <laughs> Let me pull up our new Patreon. People were signing up as we were talking. So there are really ultra new ones there are some ultra new people in here thank you to our patrons wow <laughs> look at that thank you to our patrons rk window wells emily ann bonnie roman consul latino kea patty vck 
and Bethany Ayers Fisher. Thank you all so much. This has only been up for like a day, so this is impressive. It means the world to us. It's so much fun to share this all with you, and we hope that you also have a great time sharing your stuff with us. Please do. We love. My favorite thing ever is getting emails from y'all and reading your, your theories. It's the best. And questions. Especially a uh, shout out to the people that have sent very specific classics questions. Thank you. <laughs> I will answer them in a very long email. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you also to those who have shown their support non-monetarily by either recommending us to a friend or uh, sharing us, tweeting at us, or uh, leaving a review or a rating. That also really helps us out. And uh, as always, you can find our merch at monsterdonut.redbubble.com. I should design some new merch. For season two. Yeah, I've got to, oh, you know what I should get? You know what I should make is just make a sweatshirt or something that all it says across the front is Cleos. <laughs> okay, bye everybody. Till next time. Bye. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.